Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. My mom actually benefited from it at first, much like you see in that in the Dope Six series. 14, 15, 16 years old, I'd come home at night, my mom would nod off and fall over and cigarettes burning the linoleum in my kitchen floor. I mean, it was just like, is there pain relief or is this just this idea that there's just no pain, but is this living? Having this contemporary crisis associated with it and having my own recovery as an opportunity to talk about this thing that was such a integral experience. My guest today is named Joe Conniff. He's a public speaker, an author, a certified peer counselor, and a resource case manager in drug diversion court in Seattle. Welcome to the show, Joe. Well, Joe, it's good to talk to you again, ma'am. I had I had Joe on our live stream over on Recovery Revolution, so we've already had a chance to chat, but uh, I, th- I thought that the conversation went really, went really well and we really hit it off, so I wanted to have Joe on Recovery Survey and share with possibly a different audience his story, his journey in recovery. And by the way, if you guys aren't following the Recovery Revolution on Monday nights, um, what are you doing? Because it's awesome. It's on the Recovery Revolution Facebook page, and it's also available as a podcast. Just search Recovery Revolution Live to find that new episode every Monday. And without further ado, Joe, welcome to the show, man. Brett, good to be here. Thanks for having me back again. It's uh, well, at least to, to, to spend some time with you. It's great. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely, man. Glad to have you on. Uh, if you wouldn't mind maybe just sharing with, with the audience, kind of give us a little bit of your backstory for the people that, that aren't familiar with you. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, my name is Joe. I'm, uh, I currently live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Um, I've spent about the last 13 or 14 years actually in the Seattle area, but um, I'm originally from Western Massachusetts, pretty small town. You know, spent most of my early years, I was about 18, 19 out there. And um, a lot of my, you know, my backstory, my family experiences kind of gave way to the way that I would come to know and experience addiction, you know, um, indirectly, and then what would lead me into my own use. And so kind of, you know, how that comes to fruition is, um, you know, my, my mother growing up had a, um, Prior to, you know, prior to my coming to the world, she had a um, horrific accident where she sustained a back injury that by the time 1996 rolled around when Purdue released OxyContin, um, you know, my mom had already been on a variety of opiates. Um, and when OxyContin hit the market, my mom was one of the you know first people that I was ever aware of in Western Massachusetts that was prescribed it and worked 
moved right up through all the different milligrams that were available, clear up to 80s and 160s. And um, a lot of what I saw in my household growing up was my mom's internal dilemmas met with external solutions like pills and alcohol and the depression that came with living with chronic back pain and um, a lifetime of abuse and loss and grief. And my father was also kind of, um, he came from kind of a difficult background. He was a little bit older. There was 22 years between my folks and my dad worked for an organized crime faction out of Western Massachusetts that answered to some folks in New York. And so he had a job that was kind of there were some things he talked about. There was some violence associated with, you know, some of the folks that he ran with and um, just a lot of, you know, um, criminal behavior. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't have a good home life. Like, you know, my parents were, were very good to me. I had a lot of wonderful things. I had siblings from both of my folks' first marriages, but a lot of the things that I needed to be stable emotionally and things within my community and my show, my and my social life as I would grow older were just kind of, um, I just want to say I want they were, they were hindered a little bit just due to the inaccessibility of um, having a mother who was on prescription opioids and you know it's um it's hard because there's this dynamic of being prescribed opiates for pain but also having psychological pain like I mentioned with my mother and. So I think it's it's kind of, yeah, there was some relief happening. And then at the same time, there was the dependence that developed and that that evolved into, you know, sometimes in when I was about 15 or 16 years old and my mother asking me, you know, if I knew where to get Oxycontin and between her scripts and things like that. And that kind of immersed me into a world beyond just like kind of the, the weekend marijuana and smoking and drinking that I was doing, which was not necessarily problematic for me. Um, but you know, as I kind of got a little bit involved in understanding, not, not fully consciously like aware of what my mother was experiencing with the pills, because I just didn't really know much about opioids. I grew up in a very small white rural town where it was like, you know, most of the stuff was like marijuana, drinking LSD, a little bit of cocaine and, you know, other, you know, some of the other heavier narcotics, like crack version of cocaine and, um, opioids like heroin and stuff were, were primarily in the bigger city on the other side of the river. And so by the time I was about 17, I started having some social issues, you know, just like not being able to understand some of the common emotions associated with, you know, loss of, you know, high school relationships and seeming like betrayals from friends. And as those kind of things occurred, I noticed that my relationship with substances really started to change. You know, like I explained with my circumstances with my mother, these internal dilemmas met with external solutions. Like I really found that drugs and alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I got through high school and I made it through, um, not, you know, not in like any grand way, but I, I did get by in there. But um, by the time I graduated, I had a, a relationship and, and a very close friendship that kind of really went sideways. And um, I found cocaine very, very early on into processing that and it kind of provided this sense of hypervigilance for me that I, you know, I wouldn't, you know, let this happen again and made me feel better about myself in situations where I felt kind of unwanted. You know, I got to the point that my use got so bad, I, I was not able to get myself started in college. I didn't want to waste my dad's money. Um, 
didn't really know what else to do. And I ended up joining the military, but that, you know, that ended three years later because I had all these unaddressed um, substance use issues and, um, you know, psychological stressors that I hadn't found a way to work through. And I was just kind of putting everything on ice and stuffing it down with drugs and alcohol. And, um, you know, my use just kind of continued on for another 10 years after I was discharged early from the military for my cocaine use. I moved around the Midwest, like Colorado, Wyoming, ended up in Southern California for a while. Um, and then ended up out in Seattle and, um, you know, long story short, I, I bottomed out out here after my drinking and cocaine use ended up, um, leading me into a DV situation with my partner then. And, um, I, you know, got a no contact order. I started living out of my work van and the folks that I started staying with were using heroin and crystal meth. And, um, based on how much pain I had in my life due to my cocaine and alcohol use and constantly closing doors on opportunities and, you know, disbanding relationships because of just, I, I was just unreliable with my, my drinking and drugging, but there's so much difficulty and um, grief and loss in my life. By the time I moved in with those friends, that heroin was like the only thing that made me feel better anymore. Like the, like alcohol wasn't doing much. Cocaine wasn't really doing much anymore. It was like, Heroin was the only thing that allowed me to somewhat tolerate the tragedy of my life just by numbing everything down. And I just, I chased that into right into homelessness into the streets of Seattle in a place widely known as the blade. It's like down by uh, Pike place market in the heart of downtown Seattle, very open air drug market. And um, I finally ended up in a drug bust operation called operation Crosstown traffic in 2015. And I was arrested on charges, you know, associated with, you know, fueling my substance. I was selling, living in an alley, selling dope during the day to support my habit, you know, selling like little 10, $15 bags of dope and just re-upping with other people on the block, just trying to stay well. I wasn't even really getting high anymore. It was just like anything to not be sick. And um, drug court became the vehicle that, you know, I'd get to spend about four months behind bars, but I actually got some in-custody treatment. And that opened the door for me to start to learn to inhabit my body without substances, my mind and body without chemicals. And I started to actually develop a relationship with myself. So, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of criminal legal interventions for people who use substances, but it's very hard to deny the effectiveness of it when I benefited firsthand from it. And so, you know, since then, uh, like I said, I, I entered that program in 2015. I've been in recovery for a little over six and a half years. And, um, you know, that's, it's, it's been a great journey, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't trade any of it. There's been some very difficult times, but, um, everything that's happened has led me to the moment where I'm at today. And I'm, I'm very content and, you know, very happy with my life. So yeah, that's, um, you know, there's a lot in between there, but that's kind of, that's kind of the overview. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And you mentioned at the beginning of your story, you were talking about Purdue and, and your mom being on Oxy. And I know there's there's a really big spotlight on Purdue right now with, with the Hulu special that's out and everybody's kind of uh, beginning to see all the all the shady things that have gone into that whole 
the whole epidemic that we're in now. Um, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know as far as I, I know we're here to talk about you and, and if it's, if you, if you aren't comfortable talking about it, I totally get it. But as far as your mom went, did she go further down that hole of opioid use or did she stay on, on the, um, on the oxy or what, what happened in that situation? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, I'm glad you're asking because I think it's one thing is really understanding is how intertwined this opioid crisis has become for, for many folks. And, um, you know, seemingly starting as something so simple as prescribing for pain, which very legitimately, I can't deny that, you know, that's it. My mom actually benefited from it at first, much like you see in that, in the dope six series, which I've, I've watched, I've got like one episode left to catch up on, but you know, I think is um, <clears throat> with the very wide, easy accessibility to it, like she continued to be prescribed um, after Oxycontin, you know, she get multiple, you know, hundreds of pills of, you know, blue oxycodone 30s, the 15 milligram greens. And, you know, and I would, you know, occasionally grab those at times because I could trade those for, for Coke and stuff like that. But yeah, the, the prescribing went on for years. It just took on different forms by 2014, 2015, um, when I was in drug court, it had evolved into fentanyl, you know, back to, I think, morphine tablets, MS cottons or something. And, um, and she actually had an overdose um, while I was in drug court, which for me was just kind of, it was, it was so difficult because at that time I was really heavily indoctrinated into 12 step. Um, which is not my primary vehicle for recovery these days. I have a lot of gratitude for it, but it's very much thinking like she just needs to, she needs to get into a 12 step program. These things need to happen. And I really wasn't able to see too much of the historical context yet of her life of maybe opioids again, like for many folks in addiction is not just alleviating physical pain, it's alleviating psychological pain. And I started to, you know, meet a lot of that with compassion, even as difficult as it was to understand you know, why is my parent having an overdose? This is a prescribed medication. Like I've survived the streets of my addiction and these things. And so, um, you know, things finally did take a turn um, for the better. And about 2018, 2019 started, you know, with our relationship becoming very open about the way substances have impacted our lives and the things that they had done for us at times when we didn't know how to do things better for ourselves kind of like Gabor Mate says, like our best attempt at solving problems is my mom and I kind of came to a common understanding is, is it's like, you know, here we are, here's how this has impacted our relationship, our family dynamic. And, you know, there's a lot that's right about some of, some of these drugs. And then, you know, it's also the misbranding, the mismarketing, um, the overprescribing of things is, um, and I think she just got tired of the cycle of, you know, just um, the whole process of, prescribing and then not having enough because the tolerance builds up. And um, so for the last three years, since I, I think it was like 2018, 2019, she has found, you know, other ways of trying to manage pain and, um, you know, it doesn't involve complete abstinence of all substances, but it's moved away from prescription opioids, you know, and part of that was me kind of having a conversation with the doctor after the second overdose that she had. Um, in which I'm like, you know, I don't understand how to get, I don't know how else I can get this across to you as a, as a physician and me being somebody who's been addicted to heroin out in the streets is like, you know, you're, you're openly okay with trying to kill my mother in the name of like relieving pain. And I'm like, I've just been, I've been living this with, with her and my family for so long. Like, I mean, 
14, 15, 16 years old, I'd come home at night. My mom would nod off and fall over cigarettes. Heads of the cigarettes would be burning the linoleum in my kitchen floor. I mean, it was just like, I don't like, is there pain relief or is this just the notion, this idea that there's just no pain, but is this living? And so, you know, there's been a lot of, I want to say healing and bringing peace to that relationship by having this contemporary crisis associated with it and having my own recovery as an opportunity to talk about this thing that was such a um, integral experience that drove, I feel like contributed to my addiction and contributed to difficulties in my family. And so um, I hope that kind of that kind of answers your question. There's a lot, lot to it though, for sure. Yeah, definitely. And you kind of answered my next question. I was going to ask if, if that played any kind of role in your addiction and it sounds like it definitely did. So that kind of answered that. I know you've written a book called causes and conditions. I'd love to give you a, an opportunity just to tell the audience about that and, and where that came from and, and what, why you decided to write a book. Yeah. Um, thanks for bringing this up. It's um, yeah. The book is, Really excited. It's actually coming up uh, 12, 15, December 15th will be one year that it's been released. And um, I think one of the, you know, there's been some situations over the years where because of my travels, my time in the military, the things that I grew up with, I had a couple of friends, like kind of just, you know, offhandedly, be like, maybe you should write a book about your experiences. But like, I hadn't also gone into homelessness and substance use and, you know, like criminal, criminalized behavior that I engaged in those last few years of my addiction. So um, when I got into recovery, um, I was somebody who, you know, I wasn't so hard tied to 12-step programs. So I didn't really have this concept of anonymity um, around sharing of my story and you know, being hesitant about that through whether it's just um, not wanting to or misunderstanding of anonymity related to the 12-step programs. I was just somebody that had a lot, like my dirty laundry was all over Seattle about the kind of things that I was doing to make money. Um, I'd written some bad checks with some business, some um, disemployment opportunity that I was involved in that had a lot of engagement with the general public and things like that. So I, when I got into recovery, I was like, well, if everybody knows all this horrible stuff, that I was doing, you know, seemingly, you know, wrong behaviors or unskillful things that I was engaged in. Why can't I be open about the successes, about overcoming this, about the factors, the causes and conditions, if you will, that led to this and an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit more openly and engage the process of becoming addicted and the process of trying to get out of it and kind of the systems and players involved in my experience and I had been really fortunate to, you know, get asked to, you know, to share my story at the local level at the King County Behavioral Health Legislative Forum. I had been on news interviews about participating in an incarcerated veterans program while I was in custody. It was kind of like a pilot project in Seattle. King County is a really, really big city around conversations on behavioral health. And so like getting any any juice with the media, like put me in a position where a lot of folks would come and ask me to tell my story here, tell my story there, like far beyond the rooms of recovery. But I always got asked to, you know, spin it this way, you know, chop it down into four minutes or like, Hey, you've got 45 minutes to speak. And I'm like, I've told it and rewritten it to highlight certain details. So many different ways that I was like, at this point, I'm like, I should just put this all down somewhere so that I can actually point people to 
a book that has my experiences is, is whole and complete as I, you know, can re- recall them as well as, you know, people that were asking me, what do you think we need to do around, you know, the behavioral health matters that our community faces and addiction. And, you know, can you talk about the prescription opioid crisis and your firsthand experience? And I'm like, if I just have something there that I can point people to, then I would feel better, you know, and um, they would kind of buy me some time to do some of the things that I wanted to do with my life, like trying to get back to school and stuff like that. And um, so I started writing, but I also found in the process that like kind of, you know, putting pen to paper, writing inventory, so to speak, was like, I found a voice for my recovery that was a little bit more authentic when I started putting that pen to paper and found that I was like writing some of my memoir in a capacity that I wanted it to be appealing for people. So I was trying to add like, you know, a little injecting a little bit of like comedy and these other things, but it didn't sound like me. And I was like, who am I writing this for? Really? Like, what if I just wrote it for me? wrote it as truthfully and forth as forthcoming as I can about my experiences. And if there's a little bit of comedy and a little bit of humor in there, whatever, fine. But like, this is my story. Like, let me hammer it out and just keep it real and raw. And that's what I did and uh, move forward with self-publishing it in, in 2020. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's been pretty successful. I've just got it into the King County library system here and in, in Seattle, the Seattle area, which is, huge. It's got a lot of positive five-star reviews on Amazon and currently working on a second book, you know, for some of the things that I left unsaid in there with an opportunity to engage practices. But I just really wanted the memoir causes and conditions to really just highlight some of the things that I felt like gave way to my addiction and normalizing, you know, what I felt like so many of our community members have been facing friends and family all over the country due to the opioid crisis. and. Um, also coming into contact with the criminal legal system and the intersection with that, with behavioral health, you know, and um, I've been very fortunate to come full circle with my experience with drug diversion court. And now, you know, I work for that same program as a resource specialist and peer counselor. And so part of the book was writing about it as a person receiving services. And then at the end, getting it to the point that I was a person doing peer work. And some of the difficulties that I saw and also, you know, my coming from a hardcore abstinence background, you know, embracing harm reduction and the need to address, you know, some of the, the, the problems with prohibition, the war on drugs with the racial disparities and privilege and all these things that like I got out of my addiction because of, you know, a lot of privilege and a lot of these systems that most people have really negative interactions with. And so also shedding a light on why it worked for me and why it's not a um, like the solution for everybody in our community. And that's like, that for me was also one of the most important elements of writing the book was like wanting to really dig in on what worked for me um, because I've always been told just need to be grateful for the interventions and, and this and that. And I'm like, you know why? Because it's the only interventions we know is the criminal legal system. It's the only thing we've ever relied on. Like, what if we envision something different? you know, where people didn't have to come into contact with that system. And so the ending of the book gave me an opportunity to engage that and the rise of overdoses and talk about epidemic within a pandemic during COVID. You know, COVID gave me the opportunity to finish the book because I saw even more further glaring disparities at the time of the social upheavals with, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and murders of like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and all these systems that are continuously failing people while giving people 
a segue into needing to alleviate pain and trauma in their lives through substances. And so it was like, I'm like, this is, this is like my story, but there's an opportunity to close it out with, you know, some value for contemporary matters. And, um, and I'm like, man, I got to write another one. So that's, that's where we're at now. Kind of touching on what you just, just were talking about. We, I had a guest on a few weeks back, um, and he was talking about harm reduction. So I'd be curious to know from your perspective, what are some things that, we as everyday people can do to help with harm reduction or what are some ways that we can get involved? Man, that's great. Um, great question because I'm not, you know, by, by any means it's, it's like, I don't do harm reduction work in my, you know, I mean, in the sense of like community outreach that we sometimes see with boots on the ground stuff. I mean, there's aspects of harm reduction practices that I think I'm able to do in my work, but it's with um, my work at the, it's a drug court is it's, you know, it's, it's an, there's folks have felony charges. Um, and so, you know, we're an absence-based model, but I've been involved in some overdose task forces and um, other, you know, strategic groups um, as a person with lived experience in the Seattle King County area. And, you know, being around other people that are, that are really knee deep in this work is I think the best way for, for me to say, you know, what are the, what are the ways to get involved? What are the ways to kind of embrace this is I think just really, um, I want to say Seattle and King County area where I'm at is they're not way far ahead in, you know, in harm reduction practices and strategies, but needle exchanges have been around for a while. People can get fentanyl test strips. People can get access to clean works and things for IV drug use in a lot of different places around the city. Is it enough? No. You know, do we have safe consumption spaces here? No, like we're trying to work on it. You know, that would be, you know, a really great um, harm reduction strategy here. But I think is it's also is like, you know, we don't have a continuum of harm reduction that's consistent across the nation. We have places that are like, you know, really, um, you know, some of the more conservative areas have, have been really slow to embrace, you know, evidence-based public health strategies like needle exchange, which, you know, stemming out from like the late 80s, we know, you know, have increased outcomes for public health around, you know, infectious diseases, HIV, Hep C, and things of that nature. And um, yeah, it's just this idea like, you know, can we stand with people in the discomfort of their lives while they're in active use? And being okay with them being in active use without needing them to be any different than they are, you know? And so I think when we take that, we apply that, that lens to it as we realize, you know, it's, we should just be treating people with compassion and dignity. And it, a lot of times people say it's just enabling, but it's actually more harmful at times to, to try to drag people through the ringer of like going into an abstinence-based model or needing to do something else is it's just like, you know, we see so little of what folks actually have going on in their life. And so, you know, I've, I, you know, was a couple of years later into my recovery coming to embracing harm reduction, because I thought the only thing that I knew that I had been subjected to drug court was such a great thing. And it's, and it's an, it's a pathway, you know, but um, I think, especially with the nature of fentanyl and methamphetamine and where we're at right now is it's like, if we can't connect people to the proper services that they need for their respective needs in their life, um, really the, you know, and the principle of meeting people where they're at is, um, you know, we, if we can't 
get a safe supply of drugs and, and those kind of things and, and trying to end prohibition, which is something that I believe, you know, would be helpful is then we have to at least understand that people are going to engage in this behavior, regardless of whether we agree with that or not, get behind the reality of it and do the best that we can to help keep them alive until, um, until if at all, they reach a point that they want to change that. Otherwise it's like, at least their quality of life now can, you know, not have to include, you know, as many adulterated narcotics and drugs and, you know, illicit fentanyl poisoning and things like that, that are, that are hard to know what people are putting in their bodies. And so I think it's really just like harm reduction in the sense that I, I think about it is, can we learn to live with the realities of addiction in our community and stop thinking that the folks that use drugs or that have no intention of stopping using drugs are any less deserving of health and well-being in their respective, you know, how they're, how they're living. I think it's just comes down to compassion and dignity, really. Mm. That's very well said. Great answer, man. Well, uh, there's a, there's a new question I've started asking towards the end of the episode. And, uh, that is, uh, is there a quote or a mantra or something that you've used in your recovery journey that's really had an impact on you? Or maybe, maybe somebody had a conversation with you and like, you took something from that and, and that was like a, a really pivotal, like keystone moment in your, in your recovery. Um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, one of the things that stands out to me is, and it's, it's, I'm somebody who, you know, mindfulness meditation has been a big part of my recovery journey. Like I think, um, I like to always say that if addiction is the full flight from reality, as it's written in some of the 12 step literature and things like that is then recovery has to be about arriving here in this moment with the ability to be with it. And so with that said, one of the things that I try to bring into consciousness when I'm having difficult times, when things are not, you know, obviously life is unmanageable, but when things are really getting out of order and I'm feeling, you know, like anxious or kind of indecisive about what needs to happen is trying to pause long enough to ask myself, what would the best version of myself do in this moment? And if I stop in that moment, center myself with my breath and ask myself that question and really call into awareness, you know, all of the other things that I've done in my experiences. Like when I've acted unskillfully so much to the sense that um, I chased, you know, my, my addiction to try to find some pleasure and things like that is, um, and I don't want to downplay, like, you know, that was my best attempt at things. Is it the best version of myself compared to where I feel like I'm at today? Not necessarily, but given what I know about, how my addiction caused more pain and unnecessary suffering in my life is when I ask, what is the best version of myself? How would, how would that show up today is to understand, you know, like, what are my principles? What are my values? It's, you know, compassion, kindness, generosity, forgiveness, ability to be with all the difficulty in the world without really getting super frustrated and angry about it. So that, it, you know, anything that costs me my peace is too expensive. And so that, that asking myself about the version of myself is it's really, it's, it's a moment of mindfulness to try to bring myself in to move forward skillfully with some wisdom about my previous experiences so that I don't take too many steps back. Like I don't, you know, I'm not about perfection, but if I'm going to, you know, make a decision that's maybe not the best, at least it's, you know, hopefully not going to lead me into a place where um, I'm going to cause harm to my community or people around me because I don't have my, 
myself in check or my emotions, you know, registering with me that I'm, oh, I'm feeling a little bit triggered, like with anger and anxiety right now. And like, let me, you know, let me just kind of see how would I want to be treated? How would I want to treat somebody else? And so that what is the best version of myself opens the door to really stop and investigate, like, what am I experiencing and what do I want to happen next? And so it's a big part of a mindfulness practice for me. And I love that. And, and I, I, I use something kind of similar, you know, when I'm in a situation and people aren't behaving the way that I want them to. One of my, one of the things that a sponsor told me years ago was they're doing the best they can at that moment. And that's mm. something that I've carried with me is like, they're doing the best that they can just because they aren't living up to my expectations. Like that doesn't matter. They're doing the best that they can. And I feel like that has helped me uh, accept a lot of situations and not be angry at the way people behave because they're doing the best they can. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's, I think this kind of comes down to, you know, you could, you could say grace, maybe, you know, like it's, it's a way to, like what you were describing, um, you know, I think about extending grace to people, right? Like just coming to things with kind of this, this idea of like a beginner's mind, right? Like we know very little, you know, I think that idea of like, they're doing the best that they can is it's like, we just, we assume best intentions. We make no other assumptions about other people. And it's also ourselves too, right? Like extending grace to ourselves in the moment of like, maybe this is feeling a certain way. And it's similar to something I've experienced in the past, but it's not the same exact situation. Like mm -hmm. this is not them. This is a different time, whether it looks the same, whether it tastes the same, it feels the same as an opportunity for something new to unfold on the other side of this. If I stop like the, the habit patterns of the reactive tendencies and, you know, it's a kind of moving into responsiveness away from reactivity. And I think that's, you know, that's recovery in itself, right? It's just being able to, be with any potential discomfort without wanting it to be any different than it is. And, um, and a lot of times, man, it's, it's, it is it's like, I feel like other people, and a lot of times it's really me, but like, I feel like outwardly it's easy to want to see other people as part of the issues that I'm having in my life. And if I can start by extending other folks that grace or that um, understanding they're doing the best that they can, then that really off, that makes things easier for me too. So it's like, it's a win-win for the whole community. I feel like, yeah, definitely, man. Well, we're getting towards the end of the episode, so I'd love to give you an opportunity. Uh, if if the audience is wanting to connect with you, maybe on social media, or if they want to pick up a copy of Causes and Conditions, what are the best places that they can go to to find different resources from you? Yeah, so um, the book, um, easiest way to probably get it is on Amazon.com. Uh, you can look up my name, Joseph Conniff, or you can look it up by the book, Causes and Conditions, A Life Experience and Addiction and Recovery. Um, it's available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. I'm currently um, in discussion about how to do an audio book. Um, I'm also, I've got two Facebook pages. I have my author page, which is um, Joe Conniff, comma, author. And then my personal page is Joseph Conniff. And then I'm also on Instagram at mindful, M-I-N-D-F-U-L underscore of O-F and then underscore recovery, R-E-C-O-V-E-R-Y, mindful underscore of underscore recovery. And I share, you know, some different excerpts from my books, some of the stuff that I'm, some of the work I'm doing in the community. I've got a link tree on my Instagram connected to some uh, some other interviews I've done. I'll, I'll be putting this up there once you've got a link. And um, 
It's also linked to the book in there um, for Amazon. You can also find that. I forgot to add it's on uh, Barnes and Noble online as well for the book. So yeah, I try to, I try to get around on some of the platforms. So Awesome. Well, Joe, I really do appreciate you coming on the show today, sharing part of your story, you know, going into some of your family history. I know it can't be easy to, to talk about some of these difficult things, man, but I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with us about that. Yeah, my pleasure, Brett. I, I think it's um, just important to try to level the playing field and realize a lot of us are having some of these similar experiences. We've got a couple of generations of folks that the opioid crisis has touched their lives, um, you know, with with parents, with family members. And I'm just trying to use use that story to connect people and let them know, hey, there's a lot of us out here that have had these experiences and um, you're not alone in this and, you know, hope to extend some some hope and some compassion. And so always appreciative to uh, spend some time with you and super grateful to, to have been on recovery survey today with you, man. Wish you the best. Thanks. Same to you, man. Thank you. Joe, I'm so glad we were able to talk again, man. I really do appreciate you coming on and sharing your incredible story with the recovery survey listeners. Guys, if you're interested in his book, causes and conditions, a life experience in addiction and recovery, Be sure to check out the links in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.